Mark chapter 4, we are actually going through this very book with my own church back up in Pennsylvania, going through the Gospel of Mark, and I have found it to be perhaps uh, my favorite sort of Gospel account of Jesus' life. Uh, it's an interesting account of Jesus' life. If you, uh, I won't go through all, I'm in part 10, I'm only on chapter 4, so if that tells you something, that is... Definitely my dad. So, um, but uh, it, I, I've, as I've been going through it, I've really just kind of honed in on this idea that Jesus here is acting very much like an unexpected savior. Uh, in fact, that's kind of what I've titled the sermon series as I've gone through it, Unexpected. Because each and every turn, as we see Jesus here in the Gospel of Mark, he does something or says something or interacts with someone who is unexpected. He comes, and actually the first couple words of your gospel, they say that very thing. That Jesus, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And there's no mistaking who this gospel is about. It's about Christ. And he comes and he, and he announces in the very first chapter that he has come to preach the gospel of the kingdom. He says that in verse 14 and 15 of the first chapter. And he, is, he makes no bones about it, who he is and what he has come to do. But as you know, many people in this day and age didn't understand what that quite meant. When he said that he was the king and that he was coming back as the Messiah, they had a very different image in their mind of one who was not, he, was, he shouldn't be hanging around with sinners and outcasts. He should be leading an insurrection against the Roman government, and he doesn't do that. He never once picks up a sword and tries to overtake Rome. And this frustrated them. This frustrated this first century crowd because they didn't understand why their Messiah wasn't doing the Messiah-y things that they thought that he should do. And here, at the end of Mark chapter 4, we have that very famous scene. The famous scene on the Sea of Galilee. And there's some really interesting words that introduce our text. Our text for tonight will take us through the end of chapter 4, starting in verse 35 through the end. But there's a really intriguing couple words that introduce our text in verse 35, where the gospel writer says, And the same day, when the even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. Those first four words, and the same day. I find intriguing because this famous event of Jesus stilling the storm on the Sea of Galilee happens after all of the events in the previous parts of chapter 4 and chapter 3. If you know what has been going on, he's been teaching quite extensively about the kingdom, comparing it to soil, and he's comparing it to seeds and all sorts of other types of parables that aren't even recorded here for us in Mark. And he's teaching from a small ship on the shore. If you go back to chapter 3 verse 9 it says. And he spake to his disciples. That a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude. Lest they should throng him. And we find that he was in the ship by that seashore teaching from it. If you look at chapter 4 verse 1. And it says, and he began to teach by the seaside. And there was gathered unto him a great multitude. So that he entered into a ship. And sat in the sea, and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. So he's teaching from this little boat, and from it, that's the same little boat that will carry his disciples across the sea. 
which he now is using to get away from the crowds. He says, let us pass, back in our text, verse 35, let us pass to the other side. This, of course, is an entirely human moment from our Lord. Why is he going to the other side of the sea? Because he wants to get away from the crowd. He's been teaching and interacting with people for an entire day. An entire day's full of ministry. He is weary. He is tired. He is exhausted. He needs solitude and silence and rest. Such is why he's now saying, let us pass over to the other side. This is very typical of Mark. He always is conveying this idea of the pressure of the crowds. The crowds that were pressing in on Jesus. Such that at the end of chapters 2. I think it's chapter 2. Or no it's the end of chapter 3. Where the crowd is so great that his family even can't even get to him in the house in which he was staying. And it showcases Jesus' humanity here. Why? Because he needs rest. And, it's, and I think it's very uh, specific that this, ha- this scene happens at this moment. Jesus is needing sleep. So he orders his disciples to cross the Sea of Galilee. And yet there was never a moment in which he is not in control. Yes, he goes to sleep. And it's not by chance that a miracle happens. I know you know this story, but I want to walk through it very quickly. Starting in verse 35, I think I want to, or I want to point out to you first, the command. The command, look at it again, verse 35. In the same day, when the even was come, he saith unto them, let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him, even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves Beat into the ship so that it was now full. Jesus orders his disciples, make my boat ready. Let's cast off and pass over to the other side of the sea. I need to get some rest. I need to get away from this crowd. And his goal was that very thing. Such is why you see that little line there in verse 36. That the disciples take him even as he was. It's a hasty departure. They don't make any other further preparations. They don't go out and buy more supplies or anything like that. They take him even as he was. They cast off as soon as he says so. And they make for the other side following this command. And yet immediately a storm overtakes them. A great storm of wind, Mark calls it. Or a violent hurricane, you might read that. It's a violent hurricane of wind and waves and rain. This, of course, is very natural, a natural occurrence on the Sea of Galilee. It's the lowest freshwater lake on the earth and it's surrounded by mountains, which make it a very good location if you want a hurricane to happen. And it lends itself to these sorts of swift and violent and fierce storms that can come upon sailors unawares. But I love the fact that Jesus here, he commands them... To depart knowing full well what was ahead of them. This is the command of Christ. He was not ever in a moment not divine. Even though he was displaying a human emotion and a human need. And yet here he knows what is going to happen to him and his disciples. And he commands them to go regardless. 
The disciples, they did not get stuck in this storm by accident. This wasn't by chance. This wasn't happenstance. It wasn't because they were just really bad sailors. They weren't ignorant of what was ahead of them. They knew perhaps the chance of it. Yet their Lord is now commanding them. And by obedience, they are stuck in the storm. Obeying their master. They were following his command. And what does follow? Commotion. It's a striking notion to me. It's a shocking idea that the Lord knew what was going to happen and he commanded them to go anyways. You would think that if he was a good leader, quote, he would perhaps take them another way. Perhaps go to another place to find solace. Perhaps go somewhere else to find some rest. But the Lord knew about this and led them right into it. Put yourself In the disciples' shoes for a minute. You can imagine their alarm. The storm has rose greatly upon them. So that as it says in verse 37. So that now it was full. Their boat is filling with water. They are in jeopardy. They feel as though the end is now here. Jesus has just inaugurated his kingdom and his kingdom ministry here on earth. And yet now it appears as if the end is already in sight. It's a distressing moment. Is it not? It sounds incredibly alarming that this leader would lead them right into this moment. And yet we can feel exactly like these disciples. Can we not? There's... Distressing seasons and troubling days in our lives that alarm us, that frighten us. And it feels as though God has left us. Where is God? Why would God do this? Why would God allow this to happen? This appears completely avoidable. Why would God let this happen? Why would he let this moment come upon us? Notice. Christ doesn't detail how they were going to get over to the other side. Notice he says, let us pass over to the other side. He doesn't say, by going through a storm in which you will have to muster all the strength that you can to get through it. He also doesn't say, let us pass over to the other side upon serene and calm waters upon which we will have no trouble at all. He just assures them that there would be a day in which they would pass over to the other side. Just that they would. His command goes and our faith follows. Christ's command to follow him does not always necessarily entail that calm days are ahead of you. Sometimes that's part of God's will. And sometimes storms are part of God's will too. Sometimes suffering is a natural byproduct of obedience and faith. And I would have to say and hasten to say that it's probably a very natural byproduct of faith. Why does the Apostle Peter say in chapter 4 of his first epistle, Think it not strange that this has come upon you. Don't be alarmed. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked by this moment. You are following the command of God. It's not a strange occurrence. It's not a weird time. 
It's how God has chosen to lead you. You may never know the reason for the enduring adversity you have had to face. You may never be given an answer for it. You may never be given a, 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 you may never be able to pinpoint a reason why God has allowed this to happen to you. And that's okay. You don't have to have a reason. And I'm afraid to tell you that I can't give you one either. I'm not, I'm not a genie. I'm not a magical mystic that can see all the wills and workings of God. And neither can you. And that's why I think it's called faith. Because we don't know the reasons. We were not made to. One writer said it this way, the life of faith is simply the constant willingness to trust that there's another hand that holds our life along with us. That regardless of the season that comes upon us, the storm, the great storm of wind that swiftly sweeps us off our feet, that regardless of that, there's another hand that holds us down. There's another hand that keeps us grounded. That's what faith is. You can talk all you want about uh, all these other things about religion and doctrine and faith. But faith is that. It's not knowing the future. It's not even knowing the reasons for everything that's happening. It's about knowing the one who has ordained and ordered everything in your life. And that very one holds you. That very one keeps you. That very one commands you to follow him. He's the one who has ordered everything according to his plans and purposes. Yes, even in the middle of a season of suffering. He has ordered this to happen. He has commanded this to happen. We don't know why. Oswald Chambers, the famous devotional writer, he says, Faith never knows where it is being led, but it loves and knows the one who is leading. I don't know what the future holds. We are always uncertain of the next step in life. We're uncertain of the next hour. But the one thing that we can be certain on is the command which comes from a very certain God. He is not uncertain. He is not unknowable. We cannot know the way forward, but he does know the way forward. And so that means it's okay to be ignorant of the days that lie ahead. So long as we are informed of the one who has already redeemed and ordered the days that are ahead. That's faith. The one who has already bought and redeemed all of the days that lie ahead of us. He has it all figured out. So we don't have to. He has it all ordered. And such is what his disciples, I think, forgot. Or perhaps were very ignorant of here. Unless you presume that you would think differently. Look quickly again at the text. Because not only do we see the command, but look at the commotion as well. Look at verse 36. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? 
the storm, you have to think in your mind's eye that it is not just an ordinary storm that had come upon this, this small little boat. Yes, it was natural for storms to occur on the Sea of Galilee, but here it's described as a great storm of wind, which enhances its furious nature and its violence. It's unusual for the sea, but this was no ordinary storm. Plus, we have the very fact that these experienced sailors and fishermen are now freaking out for their very lives. Master, carest thou not that we perish? It was a storm that made these disciples fear that their very lives were ending. The situation is extremely desperate. And where is Jesus? He was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. He's in the back of the boat, napping, while the disciples are panicking. They're freaking out of what is going to happen. And we can sympathize with these disciples' reactions, can you not? That they are running about in all sorts of a frenzy, trying to make sure they don't die. And their master, their teacher, he's sleeping. It appears as though Jesus doesn't care. At first thought, it looks as if Jesus doesn't have a care in the world. That he is sleeping away while his disciples are about to die. Don't you care, God? Don't you care, Jesus? They're frustrated at him. He seems disinterested or neglecting of their current situation. Their circumstances don't appear to be all that important to him. He appears indifferent to their plight. I think sometimes we can feel as if God is that way in our own lives. That if we don't see a miraculous hand of God reach down and do something, it appears as if he's indifferent. That if he doesn't reach down with a divine finger and fix our problems, we can moan and bemoan like these disciples that, God, do you not care that I am perishing? Do you not care that I'm suffering? Do you not care that I am about to lose my faith? Our own seasons of suffering, I think, make us, can make us think like these disciples. That they don't just question God's purpose. Why would you let us cross the sea if you knew what was going to happen? But it also leads us to question where he is. It leads us to question his presence. Why aren't you getting involved, God? Why are you allowing me to suffer? Why are you bringing this on me? And like the disciples, we can feel as if God's sleeping on us. But one writer, he said it like this, which I love. He says, the bad news of life's storms is compounded by what appear to be snoring sounds coming from our supposed Savior. But the fact that he can sleep assures us that he is completely unafraid of what is currently terrifying us. He's not indifferent. He knows who he is. Satan would have you concern yourself with all the things that are around you. With your circumstances. With the storm and the commotion and the frenzy. He wants you to fret over all those things. Things you cannot control or cannot change. And he wants you to think you are all alone. Why? Because this often leads to a resignation of faith. Just like these disciples. 
Look at Jesus' rebuke in verse 40, jumping ahead a little bit. He said, and he said unto them, verse 40, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? Fearful there is not just afraid. It really has the idea of cowardice leading to apostasy, leading to an abandonment of the faith. Why are you so quick to forget, to neglect, to apostatize what I have poured into you? Disciples' faith wasn't just diminished, it had deteriorated. It was completely gone in this moment. They had witnessed miracles and been privy to the expounding and explanation of parables, and yet still they did not get it. They were still in the dark of what it meant that this master from Nazareth was the Messiah. Their commotion was a lack of trust. Why do you think Jesus is letting this happen? (laughs) He's testing their faith by putting the fate of the kingdom in jeopardy. What did he have just said in the couple parables previous about the seeds? That this kingdom will come about of itself. I love that parable starting at verse 26 where he says, So is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed into the ground. And should sleep and rise night and day and the seed should spring up and grow up. He knoweth not how. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself. It happens apart from the farmer's involvement. And he says, guess what? You want to experience what this is like? I'm going to put the fate of the kingdom in jeopardy. They had just been privy to this. And now he's saying, and they're appearing as if they're in a situation. As if all of that was about to come to an end. You see, Jesus isn't napping because he's disinterested. He's napping because he knows who he is. It's as if he's saying, you think a storm can stop my kingdom from happening? I'm the Lord of this storm. I'm the God of it. You think that this little wind and rain can stop my progress in this world of redemption? You have another thing coming. I'm the Son of God. I'm the Word incarnate. I'm Yahweh in the flesh. And He's stronger than this storm. And He's stronger than whatever crisis you have going on in your life. He is still the Son of God. And there's nothing that is more powerful. Nothing that is more omnipotent than His Word. He can stop your storm with a, with a snap of his fingers. And his presence, I love this little fact. His presence permeated this entire sea. You want to see the far-reaching effects of his power? Look at verse 35 again. Or excuse me, verse 36 at the end where it says, And there were other little ships. And there were also with him other little ships. <laughs> It's a little fact that's exclusive to Mark's gospel. And he's saying that this storm wasn't just felt by the disciples. There were other people on that sea. And when Jesus calms it, that calm extends to those ships too. 
Regardless of whether these little boats were filled with faithful followers or just people wanting to get another thing from this miracle man from Nazareth, Jesus calmed the entire sea. He calmed all of it. This same Savior gives of himself the same in the same measure to each of us. Whether we are weak in faith or strong in faith, he comes and he meets all of us with great faithfulness. And that's where we get to the third lesson in our text. The command, the commotion. But look in verse 38 through the end. The calm. Verse 38 again. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and they say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus is napping, he's asleep at the back of the boat, and he's woken up by frenzied disciples. I would not want to be woken up like that. And yet he wakes up, and he rebukes the sea. I love that Mark says that here. It says, and he arose and rebuked the wind, and said unto the sea. I love the fact also that Jesus is not awakened by all of the elements of the storm. You notice that? Jesus is not stirred by the movements of the storm. He's only awoken by the disciples' commotion coming up to him and crying unto him, Master, carest not that thou, that thou that we perish? That's what wakes him up. The storm is swirling. The Savior is sleeping. God is not moved by any event that comes into your life. He's not surprised by it. He's not shocked by it. He's not startled by the season of suffering that you are being made to endure. But he moves to action the moment we cry for mercy. And he rebukes this storm. That word there is a strong word. Jesus is literally scolding the weather. He's rebuking the sea and the wind. And he says to it, peace, be still. It's the same word from chapter 1, verse 25. When he said to the demon, be muzzled. He's muzzling the weather here with the power of his voice. This is the God that was with them in this little boat. And I love this little fact where it says, and the wind ceased. It literally means to cease or stop from violence or rage or to grow weary. The wearied Savior spoke and wearied this storm. He brought it to cease. He brought it to be weary. The one who was tired, the one who felt all the emotion and exhaustion like a human felt, woke up and wearied the storm in which his disciples were enduring. And he beat it back to a great calm. One moment he is resting from human weariness and the very next moment he is exercising divine authority over the elements of the created order. This is their teacher. Why do you think that they are more scared after the fact? 
They were fearful in the storm. And then it says in verse 41, and they feared exceedingly. Why? Because he had the power to command the wind and the waves to be muzzled. And this is their teacher. Alexander McLaren, the great commentator. He says, wearied as he was, the disciples' cry at once arouses him. And the fatigue which shows his manhood gives place to the divine energy which says to the sea, peace, be still. The lips which a moment before had been parted in the soft breathing of weary sleep now open to utter the omnipotent word. So wonderfully does he blend the human and the divine. The form of a servant in the nature of God. In one instance, he shows that he is perfectly human and perfectly God in the same exact time. He demonstrates his humanity and he demonstrates his deity. Why? Because he wants them to see who he was. He stills the sea. And there he's literally giving perhaps another parable. Not of words, but of actions. (laughs) This, by the way, is Mark's precedent. Throughout the gospel, he will focus on actions, not words. He doesn't have extended sermons like Matthew does. He has quick, short, hard-hitting action and narrative. And here, what is he doing? He's showing his very disciples, the one he had invited into close teaching with him. And he shows him that they were, back in verse 12, the ones who were seeing that they may see and not perceive. Who were hearing And yet not understanding. That was them. They still didn't see. They still didn't get it. That he is God's parable to us. The form of a man. And yet the fullness of God. He's the divine mystery. A living parable that speaks to the seas and makes them calm. Who speaks to our souls and gives us the same calm. This divine parable. He was in the boat with the disciples. And guess what? He is with you right now, even as you sit in this sanctuary. The same master over the seas, over the wind. He is here with you. Regardless of the storm or the trial that you have been made to endure, your master is in the boat with you. He has never left you. And he will bring you to the other side. This is his good news to us. He is the angel, we might say, in the whirlwind. Like we said earlier, he is the creator of the storm. He is also the deliverer from the storm. Nothing can disrupt God's plans and purposes for you. Not even a storm. Not even something that appears to you unexpected. That appears to you to be unplanned. We don't plan to get sick. We don't plan to have a death. We don't plan to go through depression. We don't plan to have our lives turned upside down. We don't plan for any of that. And God says, I am the God of the unplanned. Have faith in me. I am the divine parable who dwells among you. I'm the word that, is sent, that has been sent to tabernacle among you. You have real storms, yes, but I am the savior in the midst of those storms. He's the savior in the midst of all of our stormy seasons of life. 
The ones where it appears that he is absent. The one where it appears that he is indifferent. The one where it appears where he is not wanting to get involved. He is still there. It might appear like he's not, but he walks hand in hand with us through those very seasons. Through life's intensest storms. As it says in Psalm 46.1, that he is our very present help in trouble. Why? Not just because he walks through the storms with us. Why? Also, because he knows what those storms feel like in his own body. You have a God who knows what suffering feels like. As we heard about this morning, and as my dad preached about Jesus' crucifixion. You have a God who knows what it feels like to be betrayed, to be mocked, to be spit at, to be um, utterly, uh, utterly deserted. He knows what it's like to die. This is a God who knows what it's like to suffer with us, to go through the most severe travail any human has ever, ever gone through. He knows what that's like. And he says, I have borne it for you. I have been touched with the feelings of your infirmities. Why? So that you might have an ever-present grace and mercy to come to in time of need. He comes to be abandoned so that you and I might be found. He comes to be hated so that you and I might be loved. He comes to die so that you and I might live. He comes to usher us through this storm so that we might see what type of Savior He is. He's the master of the wind and the waves. And he's master of your life too. He is our savior in the midst of all of life's stormy seasons. And there's no storm that you are, have been made to endure that is outside of that sovereignty. It might appear that way. I, I can remember feeling that way last year. When everything was happening with my family and my mom. I remember not knowing what I believed. If God let this happen. And yet God is not absent from my suffering. He's not indifferent to my plight. And he's not indifferent to yours either. He has never left you. The clouds, they may cloud your view of him, but he is still there behind them. He is the master of your storm. And if I could urge you to do one thing, never think that he has let go of you, because he cannot. He will not let go of you. No one and nothing can pluck you out of his hand. Not even the suffering you have been made to endure right now. It cannot pluck you out of it. He is in the boat with you. And he is the master of your storm. The creator of it. And the deliverer from it. I urge you. Trust in this savior. There might be a great storm that you are being made to endure. But I guarantee you. There is a greater calm. On the other side. Let us pray.